Welcome to Ascension Development, the podcast. All right, welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. I'm your host, George Dvorsky, and this is the podcast of my blog, Sentient Developments, where I cover such topics as transhumanism, futurism, science, and technology. Today's episode will be a special episode, as I'm holding in my hands, you hear that rustling of the papers, yes, that's right, hard copy of latest edition of the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society, where I've had my paper, along with my collaborators, Robert Bradbury and Milan Sirkovich, our paper, published. And it is entitled, Dysonian Approach to SETI, A Fruitful Middle Ground. And today's episode will be dedicated in its entirety to this academic paper, which is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7... Eight, let's call it eight pages and a bit, divided into six different sections. Now, I, I had thought that I was going to break it up into several episodes, but I changed my mind. And I'm going to basically uh, read the entire paper to you now. My concern is that it will perhaps be a bit dry and technical as it's written in that kind of academic style. But the challenge will be on me to, as your host, uh, as the reader, to convey it still in an interesting and an engaging way. And I'll continue to um, basically have our uh, intermissions with the music and the background uh, music to kind of give it a bit of spice, and hopefully it will not be too dry. And in fact, hopefully, you'll be, in, you'll be as engaged in the subject matter uh, as we certainly were when we were putting this this paper together. And just as a quick summary, again, uh, for those who've been listening to the podcast for the last few weeks, you know very well what I'm going on about. This is our, basically is our critique to SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But it's more than just a critique. It's also a look into the, into the future of the program. And we present a new way of peering into the cosmos as we look for intelligent life, what we call Dysonian SETI, which is basically, uh, borrowed from Freeman Dyson and his conjecture that we should be looking for, or not necessarily his, his he didn't say we should be looking for, but simply that uh, intelligent life will be creating some rather spectacular constructs and will have other kinds of signatures that we should be looking for. So there you have it. And without further ado, I think I will get started. And I will start by going over our abstract. I'll put this hard copy away now and go to the computer screen where it's much easier to read. And again, uh, published in the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. And it does have the strange date, though, and I would like to inquire into why they did this. The date is May 2011. And I'm thinking JBiz may be behind or they're just trying to get content for their um, enough content for their editions. But uh, this was only published a few weeks ago. So why they give, would give it a May 2011 date is perplexing to me. 
Anyways, doesn't matter. It's been published. So here is our abstract. We critically assess the prevailing currents in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI, embodied in the notion of radio searches for intentional artificial signals as envisioned by pioneers such as Frank Drake, Philip Morrison, Michael Papaganis, and others. In particular, we emphasize, one, the necessity of integrating SETI into a wider astrobiological and future studies context. Two, the relevance of and lessons to be learned from the anti-SETI arguments, in particular Fermi's paradox. And three, a need for complementary approach, which we dub the Dysonian SETI. It is meaningfully derived from the inventive and visionary ideas of Freeman J. Dyson and his imaginative precursors like Konstantin E. Sokolovsky, Olaf Stapleton, Nikola Tesla, or John B.S. Haldane, who suggested macro-engineering projects as the focal points in the context of extrapolations about the future of humanity and, by analogy, other intelligent species. We consider practical ramifications of the Dysonian SETI and indicate some of the promising directions for future work. And the keywords that we used in the paper include astrobiology, extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI projects, history and philosophy of science, future studies, transhumanism, and macroengineering. Now, before I go on, by the way, I would like to note that uh, you know it took three of us to put this together. And uh, as I read, th read through it, I do see little pieces of me uh, basically scattered in and around the paper. But if I was to say there was any particular section that I concentrated on, it was the transhumanist element, the, uh, the intelligent life element, the extrapolations as to where uh, an intelligent species could find itself in an advanced state. So basically, I was the resident transhumanist uh, as part of this team. Um, Sirkovich is the, um, is the uh, astrobiologist and astronomer. And Bradbury, the late, great Robert Bradbury, who died while we were putting this paper together of a massive stroke, he was more the computational expert and also um, expert in terms as well, in terms of some of the macroengineering projects that could be developed. So uh, now I will get into the introduction, part one, prolegomena for the Dysonian SETI. The search for extra and extra and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, henceforth SETI, presents an impartial observer with a paradox. It is simultaneously one of the most fascinating pursuits within the contemporary astrobiological context, and yet one which has benefited very little from the nascent astrobiological revolution thus far. This is particularly disturbing since we are lucky enough to live in an epoch of great progress in astrobiology, the multidisciplinary field which deals with three canonical questions. Number one is... How does life begin and develop? Number two, does life exist elsewhere in the universe? And number three, what is the future of life and intelligence on Earth and in space? Now, a number of revealing discoveries have been made over the last decade or so. Of these, the most important has certainly been the discovery of large numbers of extrasolar planets. Additionally, the presence of many extremophile organisms at the deep ocean hydrothermal vents has served as a potential vindication of the deep, hot biosphere of Thomas Gold. There's also been the discovery of subsurface water on Mars and the huge ocean on Europa, and possibly also Ganymede and Callisto. Other influential breakthroughs include the unequivocal discovery of amino acids and other complex organic compounds in meteorites, modeling organic chemistry in Martian and Titan's atmosphere, the quantitative conceptualization and treatment of the galactic habitable zone, 
the development of a new generation of panspermia theories spurred on by experimental verification, revealing how even terrestrial microorganisms can survive conditions of an asteroidal or a cometary impact. And progress in philosophy and methodology, etc. Now, all these findings strongly indicate that we are experiencing a revolution in astrobiology. Now, that said, it has not provoked a marked increase in interest and activities in the SETI domain. Consequently, inquiries into the reasons for this situation and possible ways of remedying it are the main motivations for this present study. Beginning with the pioneering work of Frank Drake, Carl Sagan, Philip Morrison, Michael Papaganis, Josef Schlokowski, Bernard Olivier, and others, as well as the historical Ozma Project, recently celebrating its half-centennial, SETI studies have had their ebb and flow of tides over the last decades. During that time, a set of ideas which can be characterized as orthodox SETI has emerged. In a simplified form, it can be summarized as follows. So here's our definition of orthodox SETI. Life is common in the universe. Emergence of intelligence and technology is, if not necessary, then at least a typical outcome of biological evolution throughout the Milky Way. A sizable fraction of technologically advanced species seeks to communicate with other intelligent creatures. It makes sense to listen for intentional radio or optical messages from the depths of space and to transmit messages in return. It makes no sense to travel across interstellar distances or to expect such interstellar visitors. The best that we can hope for is the slow and benign exchange of messages, the greatest beneficiaries in such exchanges being the youngest newcomers to the galactic club, including us humans. Basic tenets of this view crystallized by the mid-1970s, decades before the astrobiological revolution. Times are changing. In addition to the astrobiological revolution itself, some of the more important recent developments of relevance to the SETI endeavor, in the widest sense, are confirmation of the rapid origin of life on Earth, discovery and exploration of extremophiles, improved understanding of technological growth and technological capacities of future humanity, and by analogy, possible extraterrestrial technological societies, etc. For some aspects of these sweeping changes, see reference 4. Irresponsiveness of the orthodox SETI to these new developments prompt us to reconsider its basic tenets and to propose a new view of the entire endeavor. With honorable exceptions, the orthodox SETI has mostly ignored all of these recent developments. Today, SETI continues to work with the same set of philosophical, methodological, and technological assumptions that were established during the time of its pioneers, Drake, Sagan, Schlokowski, and others, in the 1960s, and the 1970s. By contrast, conceptions of astrophysics, planetary sciences, evolutionary biology, and especially computer science and neuroscience, arguably the four key scientific pillars of SETI, have changed revolutionarily, to put it mildly, since that epoch. It is both sad and ironic that the field which was once correctly identified as a paragon of originality, boldness, and vigor has not lived to these ideals during the last several decades. Instead, it has been gradually subverted by conservative views. Only by this odd conservativeness can it be explained that, for instance, a major SETI review article at the beginning of the new millennium in the most authoritative publication in astronomical sciences can be written without even a single mention of such crucial concepts as artificial intelligence, anthropic reasoning, von Neumann probes, neo-Darwinism, or macro-engineering. 
On the opposite side, there is serious opposition to SETI, which represents a wide spectrum of motivations and interests. Besides the classical skepticism of Hart, Tipler, or Mayer, the opposition got strengthened in the 2000s by the emergence of the rare earth hypothesis, as well as some harsh philosophical criticism based on methodological issues and the perceived quasi-religious overtones. It can be argued that the reality about SETI is not limited to these two extremes, of Whiteheadian fashionable opinion, either the naive optimism of the orthodox SETI establishment inherited from the founding fathers or the blatant pessimism of the detractors and often supported by extra-scientific motives. As usual, the reality is much more complex. Taking into account the developments listed above will give rise to a set of middle-ground solutions to the problem of absence, or otherwise, of extraterrestrial intelligence. Such hypotheses are, typically, not open to falsification with the standard SETI procedures, i.e. listening to intentional radio or optical messages, but are, in general, falsifiable by a different set of SETI methods and procedures. One such middle ground solution has been proposed by some of the present authors, namely Sirkovich and Bradbury, but it is far from unique in this respect. A large class of catastrophic solutions to Fermi's paradox belong in this category, as well as those based on the long-term evolutionary processes. This also applies to the ingenious idea that advanced civilizations will transfer their cognition into their environment, following recent studies on the distributed natural cognition. There is, in fact, a huge realm of logically and physically coherent possibilities which have not been seriously studied in the orthodox SETI circles thus far. In these, as in other suggested lines of post-biological evolutionary development of advanced civilizations, the approaches favored by the recent and ongoing SETI projects are fundamentally misguided, the unavoidable result being that advanced societies will remain undetectable by current approaches. Therefore, the advent of new ideas require a sea change in conservative mainstream thinking. This is hardly a luxury, but rather a necessity in a situation where epochal changes in our views of virtually everything in science and technology are not, unfortunately, accompanied by an appropriate shift in SETI attitudes and paradigms. This sea change must not be understood as leading inexorably to increased SETI optimism. A very good counterexample is the work of Raup on non-conscious SETI sources, which are likely to cause confusion in the practical SETI work. Although we hereby argue that, on the balance, changed perspectives do increase chances of actual SETI success. This is rather accidental, and certainly not necessary consequence. On the contrary, many skeptical arguments can and must be incorporated in the emerging new SETI paradigm. The failure of the orthodox SETI is thus twofold. 1. It has failed to detect its targets in spite of the widespread early optimism, and more importantly, 2. It has failed on epistemological and interdisciplinary levels as it has sought to be understood seriously enough to be fully integrated into the general astrobiological field and to gain adequate wider scientific, social, financial, and political recognition. The latter failure is, unfortunately, amply demonstrated by constant funding problems, awful budget cuts, ill-publicized controversies, and the poor reputation of the field in both astronomical, biological, and philosophical circles. There is a reasonable way to make SETI studies significantly more respectable and scientific in any appropriate sense of the word. Here we shall make the case for four strategies that characterize a supplemental approach, which has been dubbed Dysonian SETI. 1. The search for technological products, artifacts, and signatures of advanced technological civilizations. 2. 
the study of post-biological and artificially superintelligent evolutionary trajectories, as well as other relevant fields of future studies. 3. The expansion of admissible SETI target spectrum. And number 4. The achievement of tighter interdisciplinary contact with related astrobiological subfields like studies of galactic habitability, biogenesis, etc., as well as related magisterium, such as computer science, artificial life, evolutionary bio, biophilosophy of mind, etc. This outline is primarily intended to provoke further research and creative speculation in order to extend the entire space of SETI activities and its wider scientific and societal impact. And thus ends the introduction when we return from this musical interlude, part two, searching for technological products and artifacts. By their fruits, ye shall know them. The biblical proverb neatly encapsulates the proposed unconventional approach to observational SETI, in which the focus would be a search for manifestations and macro-engineering artifacts rather than intentional messages. Even more, the metaphor seems particularly apt, since it warns about messages and efforts to hear them being potentially misleading in the search for truth. It was along these lines that, in 1960, Freeman J. Dyson, the eclectic physicist and the frustrated engineer by his own amusing description in a work from 1966, suggested that the very existence of what we can term advanced technological civilizations, henceforth ATCs, should provide us with means of detecting them. As is well known, owing to Malthusian assumptions and the well-recorded exponential increase in power consumptions that has accompanied the development of technological civilization here on Earth, Dyson conjectured that a truly developed society would eventually face the limits of both living space and available energy if constrained only to planetary surfaces. Consequently, Dyson speculated that the only way to optimize the quality 
and availability of resources would be through the construction of a Dyson shell, a massive structure or set of structures that would capture most of or all the energy from the domicile star. This particular paper, hardly longer than one page, has inspired a number of similar visions and studies in the field of macroengineering, in this context also often called astroengineering, and will likely continue to do so for a long time to come. It is contended that Dyson's conjecture has effectively set groundwork for a different sort of SETI from the one conducted since the OSMA project that began in the mid-1960s. This owes to Dyson's suggestion that the infrared signatures of a Dyson shell will be detectable from large astronomical distances and will present a confirmation of the existence of ATCs and a positive SETI signal signature. This view has been subsequently elaborated in Dyson and in the often neglected study of Sagan and Walker. The crucial ingredient here is the increased awareness of the potentials inherent in technological evolution in general and macroengineering in particular. The central point was again clearly explicated by Dyson. Quote, when one discusses engineering projects on the grand scale, one can either think of what we, the human species, may do here in the future, or one can think of what extraterrestrial species, if they exist, may have already done elsewhere. To think about a grandiose future for the human species is to pursue idle dreams or science fiction, but to think in a disciplined way about what we may now be able to observe astronomically, if, astronomically, if, if it should happen to be the case that technologically advanced species exist in our corner of the universe, is a serious and legitimate part of science. In this way, I am able to transpose the dreams of a frustrated engineer into a framework, a framework of respectable astronomy." End quote. While it is possible to take a votum separatum on some of Dyson's views on future studies, written nearly half a century ago, the major point of this message seems self-evident. One of the most effective ways to ascertain limits on the technically possible is to discard anthropocentrism and sample a larger volume of space and time reasonably expecting that at some other place and time it has been achieved. This contact between macroengineering and SETI can be encouraging and productive on both sides. Unfortunately, Dyson's key insight has not yet been sufficiently understood in all its ramifications and consequences. It is important to emphasize here that the Dysonian approach to SETI is not limited to a search for the eponymous shells and activities accompanying their construction, but to a general class of artifacts, manifestations, and traces of the existence of ATCs. Some other macroengineering feats belonging to this potentially detectable category include supramundane planets, shell worlds, Jacob's ladders, and similar circumplanetary constructions, large-scale antimatter-burning vehicles or industrial plants, large-scale processing of radionucleotides, artificial planetary rings, large artificial objects, Sokolovsky-O'Neill habitats, for instance, in transiting orbits detectable through extrasolar planet searches, and smaller objects being anonymously accelerated via systems such as mass drivers or space elevators. Even the search for extraterrestrial artifacts, sometimes known under the SETA label, S-E-T-A, in the solar system belongs to this category. This approach, despite its many advantages, is still very much the minority opinion in SETI circles undoubtedly due in part to the seemingly pseudoscientific nature of the endeavor. Such myopic views must be dispensed with if there is to be a truly advanced, far-reaching, and visionary SETI. The most important advantage of the Dysonian approach concerns the spatial and temporal frames within which practical SETI is conducted. Even proponents of the SETI orthodoxy admit that the window of opportunity for radio or optical laser communication is quite short. 
In a cogent and well-written summary of the orthodox position, Durich and Field admit, quote, Under the optimistic scenario, there may be as many as 10 to the power 6 technologically advanced civilizations in the galaxy. However, these societies are at various stages of development. The probability that two extraterrestrial societies are at the same stage of evolution to say within a million years is very small. End quote. This is obviously of crucial importance if the goal is bi-directional, intentional communication between us and an extraterrestrial civilization. It is exactly to this situation that the arguments of SETI skeptics most forcibly apply. Thus, it is important to realize that what is often vaguely referred to as anti-SETI arguments are mainly arguments against orthodox SETI. However, the same window of opportunity is increased by many orders of magnitude, or even vanishes entirely when we search for macro-engineering artifacts instead of intentional messages. Moreover, given that a technological civilization's tenure in a biological state is a potentially short-lived one, and given the strong conjecture that post-biological existence is virtually immortal, the sheer number of post-biological civilizations awaiting detection relative to biological civilizations is thus grossly disproportionate. This reading Sorry, this reasoning was clear to thinkers of epochs long past. In a beautiful passage in Book 5 of the famous poem, Durerum Natura, which translates to On the Nature of Things, late Epicurean philosopher Lucretius wrote the following intriguing verses. Quote, if there had been no origin in birth of lands and sky, and they had ever been, the everlasting why, ere Theban war, and obsequies of Troy, have other bards, not also chanted other high affairs? Whither have sunk so oft so many deeds of heroes? Why do those deeds not live no more, engrafted in eternal monuments of glory? Verily, I guess, because the sun is new, and of a recent date, the nature of a universe, and had not long ago its own exordium. End quote. Neglecting here is the cosmological context of arguing for a finite past age of the universe. This passage indicates an oft-neglected aspect of Fermi's paradox. It is not enough to somehow remove all ATCs from our past light cone. We also need to erase their more durable and potentially detectable achievements in order to reproduce the empirical great silence. On Earth, the very existence of the fascinating discipline of archaeology tells us that cultures, and even individual memes, produce material records significantly more durable than themselves. It is only to be expected that such a trend will continue to hold even more forcibly, for higher levels of complexity and more advanced cultures. There are even some factors related to the properties of our cosmic environment that enhance this trend. Notably, it has already been repeatedly suggested that the traces of any hypothetical extraterrestrial visitations in the past of the solar system would be easier to locate on the moon than on the Earth, due to the vastly suppressed erosion there. As an example, for the sake of discussion, allow that a significant fraction of ATCs evolves towards the Kardashev Type 2 condition to meet its advanced and intense information processing needs, i.e. a community completely managing the energy output of its parent star. The most sensical way of achieving this would be through the construction of a Dyson shell. Once constructed, such an example of astroengineering would be quite durable on account of the properties of the interplanetary and interstellar space itself. Like the pyramids of Egypt, a Dyson shell is likely to outlive its creators for a vast period of time, on the physical eschatological scales thus being an advanced analog of Lucretius's eternal monuments. Some very preliminary searches show the absence of such artifacts in the galactic vicinity of the Sun, 
However, much more research is clearly necessary if we wish to seriously constrain the frequency of visible ATCs in this manner. In addition, it should be noted that the leakage signals, even radio or microwave ones, should also be treated as artifacts. This pertains, for instance, to the innovative attempts of Harris to search for byproducts of artificial antimatter burning. From the point of view of SETI listener, they are unintentional in the same manner as an artificial object's transit across a distant star is an unintentional effect of ATC's activities. That is the end of part two. Let's take a quick break here, and on returning, I will go over part three, post-biological evolutionary trajectories. The Dysonian approach does not prejudice against the properties and characteristics of target societies in the way the orthodox view does. It is self-evident that the willingness of both parties to engage in communication efforts is the necessary but far from sufficient condition for a successful bi-directional exchange on any scale. However, in contrast to how individual humans operate, there isn't the vaguest idea whether the same willingness to communicate exists at the interstellar scale. It is revealing that a large portion of the early SETI literature, especially writings of the Founding Fathers, consists of largely emotional attempts to make the assumption of communication, sorry, to make the assumption of communicative willingness and indirectly benevolence of SETI target societies plausible. This is read more like wishful thinking than a sound argument. To cite Dyson again, quote, My point of view is rather different, since I do not wish to presume any spirit of benevolence or community of interest among alien societies, end quote. This, of course, does not mean that the opposite assumption of malevolence should be applied. Simply, such prejudicating in the nebulous realm of alien, of alien sociology is unnecessary in the Dysonian framework. With fewer assumptions, it is easier to pass Occam's razor. On the other hand, it seems clear from the future studies of humanity that the prospect of post-biological evolution becomes more and more plausible and relevant. Technologies already envisioned by humans of today, such as radical biotechnology, molecular nanotechnology, or artificial intelligence, have potential to enormously increase the size of the evolutionary space of possibilities. 
The speculative study of extraterrestrial characteristics must necessarily begin with the study of human civilization and our own likely developmental trajectories. Contemporary future studies is increasingly pointing to humanity's pending transition from biological to post-biological existence and its merger with artificial superintelligence. This shift is necessarily accompanied by a paradigmatic evolutionary shift in which the species largely retires Darwinian processes in favor of self-directed change and adaptation. The ongoing development of the medical sciences, including current breakthroughs in cybernetics, genetics, and pending breakthroughs in anti-aging, whole brain emulation, and medical nanotechnology, are strong indicators that humanity is indeed transitioning to a post-biological condition. It is completely reasonable to surmise that such an existential shift is a common transitional stage for advanced technological civilizations, terrestrial or otherwise. Philosopher Nick Bostrom has speculated about the possibility of strong convergence, the suggestion that all sufficiently advanced civilizations converge towards the same or similar optimal condition. This is a hypothesized developmental tendency in which physical, computational, and sociological constraints work as the background fitness landscape. Civilizations that do not conform to adaptationist impositions go extinct and are thus compelled to achieve convergent Dawkinsian fitness peaks. In this scenario, Identical environmental stressors, limitations, and attractors compel intelligences to settle around optimal existential modes. This suggestion does not favor the diversification of intelligence, at least not outside of a very strict set of living parameters. Astrobiologists likewise theorize about the existence of developmental mechanisms that constrain and give directionality to the evolution of organisms and society itself. One way to capture such macroevolutionary regime is through the notion of the mega-trajectory. Noel and Bambach argue that, in consideration of the problem of progress in evolutionary history, a middle road that encompasses both contingent and convergent features of biological evolution may be attainable through the idea of the mega-trajectory. Quote, We believe that six broad mega-trajectories capture the essence of vectoral change in the history of life. The mega-trajectories for a logical sequence dictated by the necessity for complexity level n to exist before n plus 1 can evolve. In the view offered here, each mega-trajectory adds new and qualitatively distinct dimensions to the way life utilizes eco-space. End quote. According to Nolan Bambach, the six mega-trajectories outlined by biological evolution thus far are 1. The origin of life to the last common ancestor. 2. Prokurote diversification, 3. Uni unicellular eukaryote diversification, number 4. Multicellular organisms, 5. Land organisms, and 6. Appearance of intelligence, language, and technology. Zirkovich and Bradbury have taken the mega-trajectory concept one step further by theorizing that a seventh mega-trajectory exists, post-biological evolution triggered by the emergence of artificial intelligence at least equivalent to the biologically evolved one, as well as the invention of several key technologies of, of the similar level of complexity and environmental impact, such as molecular nanoassembling or stellar uplifting. Along similar lines, historian of science Stephen J. Dick, in his 2003 paper, Cultural Evolution, the Post-Biological Universe, and SETI, posited a central concept of cultural evolution he called the intelligence principle, and the principle is as follows, quote, 
the maintenance, improvement, and perpetuation of knowledge and intelligence is the central driving force of cultural evolution, and that to the extent intelligence can be improved, it will be improved. End quote. It is through the application of this principle, argues Dick, that speculations about the developmental tendencies of advanced civilizations can be made. One area of study that may bear fruit in this regard is the speculative study of post-singularity intelligence and the characteristics of artificial superintelligence. Computer scientists and artificial intelligence theorists are working to describe the processing space or mind space of advanced artificial intellects. These speculations about machine minds must take deterministic and adaptationist constraints into mind. The field of all possible, survivable, post-singularity mind spaces is a dramatically limited one. The struggle from an astrobiological perspective is to predict the characteristics of post-biological life and its adaptive states. One can imagine factors such as limited resources, access to energy, computational requirements, including heat dissipation, error correction, and latency problems, and self-preservational modes, i.e. political and social orientations that eliminate the possibility for self-destruction. This might be related to the economic solutions of Fermi's paradox. The construction of megascale projects to contend with the realities of post-biological life is a reasonable speculation. In a more general framework, macroengineering discussed above can be regarded as a particular manifestation of the general technological evolution of an intelligent community. In this way, the search for such manifestation is not essentially different from the recently proposed and now hotly discussed search for planets with life on the basis of atmospheric oxygen signatures. Both are detectable manifestations of the same underlying phenomenon in various stages of its evolution. That is the end of Part 3, When We Return, Part 4, Beyond the Mainstream SETI Targets. the mainstream SETI targets. Suppose you are an aspiring archaeologist who has read a well-argumented treatise about the abundance of unearthed archaeological treasures. Most of the possible finds in the level of state-of-the-art technology have yet to be found. You have vast funds, we imagine, and tremendous will to achieve success and uncover the secrets of ancient cultures. How do you proceed? Do you really do it systematically as per orthodox SETI? Do you take your drills and scanners and hosts of workers to geographical coordinates 0,0? marine archaeology, archaeology included, 
and then start digging along meridians or parallels. Quite obviously, such an approach would be utter nonsense, and yet, how is it that a similar approach, systematic listening to solar-like stars, is sanctioned in the orthodox SETI practice with some welcome qualifications but still a rather weak theoretical basis? The only explanation lies in a sort of self-satisfied isolation from the fast-developing fields of astrobiology, evolutionary biology, bioinformatics, computer science, and even epistemology, sorry, epistemology and philosophy of science in which mainstream SETI has lived for the past three or four decades. This sort of isolationism is never justified, not only in science, but in wider arena of intellectual life. However, as history teaches, it could be partly mitigated by inherent short-term successes of the isolated discipline. This is certainly not the case with SETI studies. In almost four decades of SETI, projects there have, been, have had no results, in spite of the prevailing contact optimism of the 1960s and 1970s, motivated largely by uncritical acceptance of the Drake Equation. Conventional estimates of that period spoke about 10 to the power 6 to 10 to the power 9 advanced societies in the Milky Way forming the Galactic Club or a similar anthropocentrically conceived association. For, for a prototype optimistic or naive view of that epoch, almost four decades old, see Bracewell. Early study literature abounds in such misplaced enthusiasm. Today, even fervent contact optimists have abandoned fanciful numbers and settled on a view that advanced extraterrestrial societies are much rarer than previously thought. One of the, the important factors in this downsizing of SETI expectations has been demonstrations by contact pessimists, especially Michael Hart and Frank Tipler, that the colonization, or at least visit, of all stellar systems in the Milky Way by means of self-reproducing von Neumann probes is feasible within a minuscule fraction of the galactic age. The Dysonian approach to SETI in practical terms reduces to the conjecture that, even if ATCs are not actively communicating with us, that does not imply that we cannot detect them and their astroengineering activities. Their detection signatures may be much older than their communication signatures. This applies both to wavelength and spatial specification of targets. Unless ATCs have taken great lengths to hide or disguise their IR detection signatures, the terrestrial observers should still be able to observe them at those wavelengths and those should be distinguishable from the normal stellar spectra. Ironically enough, surveys in the infrared have been proposed by one of the pioneers of microwave astronomy, Nobel Prize winners Charles H. Towns, although on somewhat different grounds. For instance, the controlling parameter for detection of a Dyson shell is, ultimately, its temperature. The differences in the intrinsic stellar output can be neglected in the first approximation. The searches thus far, including the mentioned studies of Jagaku et al. and Carrington, relied on Dyson's original proposal that the shell would be the size of Earth's orbit around the Sun, and that its working temperature would thus be close to the temperature of a solid body at 1 AU from a G2 dwarf star. However, from a post-biological perspective, this looks to be quite wasteful, since computers operating at room temperature, or somewhat lower, are limited by a higher KT into Brillouin limit compared to those in contact with heat reservoir on lower temperature T. Although it is not realistic to expect the efficiency that that efficiency can be increased by cooling to the cosmological limit of 3K in the realistic model of the galaxy, still it is considerable difference in practical observational terms whether one expects the Dyson shell to be close to a black body at 50K as contrasted to a black body at 300K. This lowering of the external shell temperature 
is also in agreement with the study of Badescu and Cathcart on the efficiency of extracting the work from the stellar radiation energy. In this sense, the Dysonian approach needs to be even more radical than the published intuitions of Dyson himself. Another indicative practical issue is the mode of searching. Parasitic searches, which are now used by some of the ongoing SETI projects and are a natural modus operandi for the observational search for galactic macroengineering, this is of course means this of course means a great increase in efficiency of operation as well as a decrease in cost, especially when coupled with widely distributed processing along the lines of the ingenious SETI at home. However, this makes the role of creating solid theoretical groundwork for such projects much more delicate and important. The same applies to other natural, or sorry, the same applies to other unnatural or intentional art effects like antimatter burning signatures, naturally impossible stellar spectroscopic images, i.e., strange or unexpected chemical elements could be a signal from an ETI. For example, discovering technetium in a sun like star would be a good bet that someone is trying to grab our attention. Or recognizable transits of artificial objects. Search for megaprojects such as Dyson shells, Jupiter brains, or stellar engines are more, most likely to be successful in the entire spectrum of SETI activities. Of course, even those projects or proposals put forward so far are limited in the sense of being often too conservative with respect to the full range of parameters. Similar reasoning can be applied to the volume of space sampled by active searches. According to recent important studies by Linweaver and collaborators, Earth-like planets around other stars in the galactic habitable zone are, on average, 1.8 to 1 to 0.9 giga years older than our planet. These calculations are based on chemical enrichment as the basic precondition for the existence of terrestrial planets, as well as on the rate of destructive processes like supernovae. Applying the Copernican assumption naively, we would expect that correspondingly complex life forms on those others to be on the average 1.8 giga year older. Intelligent societies, therefore, should also be older than ours by the same amount. In fact, the situation is even worse, since this is just the average value, and it is reasonable to assume that there will be somewhere in the galaxy an inhabited planet, say, 3 giga years older than Earth. Since the set of intelligent societies is likely to be dominated by a small number of oldest and most advanced members, for an ingenious discussion in somewhat different contexts, see the study of Olam we are likely to encounter a civilization actually more ancient than 1.8 giga years and probably significantly more, a giga year again being a billion years. It seems preposterous even to contemplate any possibility of communication between us and giga year older super civilizations. Remember that one giga year ago the appearance of even the simplest animals on earth lay in the distant future. Some of the SETI pioneers have been very well aware of this on the qualitative level and warned about it. These cautious voices have been consistently downplayed by the SETI community. Given the likely distances of ATCs that began their technological ascent tens of millions to billions of years ago, they are not likely to know of our development. While their astronomical cap capabilities probably allow them to observe the solar system, they are looking at it before civilization developed. It is doubtful that they would waste resources sending messages to planetary systems possessing life, but quite uncertain, in light of the biological contingency, to develop a technological civilization. Dolphins and whales are quite intelligent and possibly even human-level conscious, but they do not have the ability to detect signals from ATCs, and it is unlikely to suggest, at the very least, that they will ever evolve such a capacity. 
By a mirror image of such position, unless one has concrete evidence of an ATC at a given locale, it would be wasteful to direct SETI resources towards them. Although this conclusion can offer a rationale to some of the SETI skeptics, it is based on the entirely different overall astrobiological picture and has different practical consequences. In addition, the Dysonian approach allows us to reassess extragalactic SETI, in the sense precluded by the orthodox paradigm. Extragalactic SETI has not even been considered very seriously so far. The reason is, perhaps, the same old comforting prejudice that we should expect specific and most conveniently radio signals. Since these are not likely forthcoming over intergalactic distances, and the two-way communication desired by orthodox SETI pioneers is entirely senseless, there is no point in even thinking seriously about extragalactic SETI. Such view is fallacious. When the cozy assumption of specific SETI signals, together with the second-order assumption of their radio nature, is removed, it collapses. But there is a much brighter side to the extragalactic SETI. It enables us, in principle, to probe enormously larger parts of physical space as well as the space of possible evolutionary histories of ATCs. Of course, part of what we get, ensemble-wise, we lose time and re resolution-wise. In fact, the definition of Kardashev's Type Three civilization, i.e. those managing energy resources of its entire home galaxy, should prompt us to consider it more carefully, at least for a sample of nearby galaxies visible at epochs significantly closer to us than the 1.8 giga-year differences between the average of Linweaver and the age of Earth, which is about 4.5 giga-years. Indeed, it could also be argued, although it is beyond the scope of this present study, that the null result of extragalactic SETI observations so far represents a strong argument against the viability of Kardashev's Type Three civilizations. While it remains a possibility in the formal sense of being in agreement with the known laws of physics, it seems that the type of pan-galactic civilization, as envisaged by Kardashev and other early SETI pioneers, is either much more difficult, suggesting that the sample of about 10 to the power of 4 normal spiral galaxies, close enough and observed in high enough detail, is simply too small to detect even a single Type Three civilization, or simply not worth striving to establish. In short, some specific proposals include, but are far from limited to, infrared surveys at 300 microns and adjacent submillimeter millimeter wavelengths, looking for anomalous sources representing low temperatures of optimized computing. Extragalactic SETI observations. For instance, the study of Annis on detectability of Kardashev Type Three civilizations in other galaxies should be redone with larger and better galaxy sample, example using the SDSS main galaxy sample database. SETA, observations and searches, including searches for inscribed matter packages and transits of artificial objects across stellar disks, and even frozen optical messages. M-dwarfs, free-floating brown dwarfs, and possibly even free-floating steppenwolf planets. Outer galactic rim, where computing could be the most efficiently performed. Vicinities of high-energy objects, like black holes, neutron stars, etc., which could provide advanced societies with both power station, research testing laboratories, and contact cooperation points. So that is the end of part four. And now uh, Atwood just take one last break and we'll do part five and part six and finish it all off.
five, tighter interdisciplinary contact. Now, some of the very best elaborations on the Dysonian ideas have been published in the science fictional context by Stanislav Lem. It is neither necessary nor desirable for our further considerations to make the notion of ATCs more precise. The diversity of post-biological evolution may at least match and possibly dwarf the diversity of its biological precedent, or it may converge around strict adaptationist constraints, including the possibility of the singleton. It is one particular feature, information processing, that is assumed common for the mainstream ATCs, in accordance with the post-biological paradigm and the intelligence principle of Dick. Thus, whether real ATCs can most adequately be described as being computers or having computers is not of key importance for this analysis. It is just supposed that, in either case, the desire for optimization of computations will be one of important, if not the most important, desires of such advanced entities. It is already clear, from the obviously short and limited human experience in astronautics, that the post-biological evolution offers significant advantages in this respect. However, an operational definition of ATC is clear. ATC is the community capable of grand feats of macroengineering. This is another important link between the fields of astrobiology and macroengineering, which certainly requires further elaboration. Even purely philosophical studies investigating the distinction between natural and artificial could be enormously helpful in this wide new field of multidisciplinary SETI studies. This is relevant, but neglected, in the orthodox SETI as well. But only in the framework of Dysonian SETI, it achieves full purpose. Necessity of elaboration of the general properties of ATCs and their creations. Thus, only in truly engaging astrobiological, AI, transhumanist, global risk, and philosophical communities in fruitful interdisciplinary worldview can SETI truly achieve the respect and dignity that pioneers like Carl Sagan justifiably aspire to. Incorporating all these elements into public outreach on SETI will be less sensationalistic and more scientific and credible, creating a new public image likely to increase the support for the field as a whole. That's the end of part five. And now part six, summary between the extremes. And if you've made it this far, I tip my hat to you. Thank you for sticking this through with me. And now we're going to conclude this. Part six, summary between the extremes. Some of the major differences between the orthodox and the Dysonian approach to SETI are laconically summarized in Table 1. As discussed above, the search for artifacts, traces, and signatures should be understood in the widest possible manner, and although it is natural to expect the practical SETI philosophy to be based on the post-biological working model, it is certainly not ex exclusive to those issues. Obviously, you cannot see Table 1, so I can just briefly describe it to you. Table 1 we've, we've titled a comparison between the orthodox and the Dysonian approach to SETI. And we basically have a comparison between the two. So, for example, what is the main object of search? Well, with orthodox SETI, it's intentional messages. For Dysonian SETI, it's artifacts, traces, and signatures. When it comes to the working ATC model, orthodox SETI, they're looking for post-biological, post-industrial analog existence. Dysonian SETI says we should look for post-biological digital existence. The temporal window of opportunity for orthodox SETI folks, it's very narrow. For Dysonian, very wide. The, the quantitative theoretical potential for orthodox SETI is limited, and for Dysonian SETI, it is unexplored and potentially massively very large. Prejudicates ETI behavior. Orthodox SETI says yes. Dysonians say no. Two-way communication. Orthodox SETI says yes. Dysonian SETI says no, not required. 
Interstellar travel, Orthodox SETI says that's irrelevant, and Dysonian SETI says it is very relevant. Are there operational risks through Orthodox SETI? Yes, they are. So, for example, the contracting of some uh, dangerous information through the listening of radio signals, which uh, that's a all huge topic unto itself. With uh, Dysonian SETI, that it, there is no such risk as we're not looking to bring in uh, radio signals. Main working frequencies, Orthodox SETI, they're looking at radio. Dysonian SETI, that's infrared. The natural mode of search for Orthodox SETI is active. For Dysonian, it is parasitic. The data resolution uh, for Orthodox SETI is high. Dysonian SETI is low. And practical extragalactic SETI, as just noted, Orthodox SETI does not even consider extragalactic searches. Dysonian SETI does, absolutely. While most of the entries in Table 1 are either explained above or self-explanatory, it is necessary to briefly comment upon the operational risks item. This pertains to the problem of decontamination of messages which are positively identified as intentional SETI signals. Some of them might in principle contain information viruses, perhaps products of natural selection in a convenient digital medium and dangerous for our information systems. Another form of operational risk is the suggestion that active SETI, i.e. our emitting of signals, is dangerous since it could attract unwanted attention, either from a hostile extraterrestrial civilization or perhaps from berserker von Neumann probes suggested as an explanation of Fermi's paradox. While it is only reasonable to conclude that such risks are very small in the case of orthodox SETI, they are still non-vanishing, and in the case of global catastrophic risks, even numerically minor risks are still a matter of concern. Clearly, such precautions are less important for the Dysonian SETI, since apart from the exceptional case of direct physical contact with inscribed matter packages, there is no bidirectional interaction. All in all, it can be argued that orthodox SETI is not only low probability in terms of success, it is also potentially risky, stunting and scientifically limiting. While the traditional approach is all but guaranteed to fail, there exists a glaring assumption within the strategy itself that has rather significant political implications. The global community would never be able to reach consensus on how to interpret and react to an actually received extraterrestrial transmission. Extraterrestrial motivations, whether benign or malign, would simply be indeterminable. In all likelihood, our will to respond would be paralyzed by a necessary application of the precautionary principle. The argument that we should not bring attention to ourselves is steadily gaining currency. Even Carl Sagan, who generally believed in the positive intentions of ATCs, warned against deliberate transmission and called such a move deeply unwise and immature. Sagan, along with Philip Morrison, suggested that human civilization should learn more about the universe before shouting out into the jungle. Consequently, an alternative approach to galactic surveillance and observation is long overdue, one in which we are not exclusively bound to detection and reception of data transmission. The Dysonian approach is well positioned to meet these concerns. It would be safer than orthodox SETI and more likely to yield efficacious and trustworthy data. Indeed, while the origin and intent of extraterrestrial signals could never be determined, i.e. the signals could be transmitted via autonomous and malign von Neumann probes, the discovery of mega-scale engineering projects would offer prima facie evidence of not just the existence of intelligent life beyond Earth, but the acknowledgement that intelligent life can in fact progress to an advanced state as projected by contemporary future studies. Consequently, the discovery of such objects would have a colossal, colossal impact on human self-perception and potential. It would not be too pretentious to claim that the comparison of the two approaches favors the Dysonian approach, yet this approach has yet to achieve its legitimacy in the circles of SETI researchers. 
bold and unconventional studies such as Friedis's, Harris's, Arnold's, Slish's, or the survey of Jagutu et al. still represent a small minority of the overall SETI research. They are usually regarded as no more than curiosities or extravagances. We suggest that there is no real scientific reason for such a situation. The regrettable condition of SETI is due to excessive conservativeness, inertia of thought, overawe of the founding fathers, or some combination of the three. Another, albeit extra-scientific argument, often put forth, forward in informal situations, is that the massive pseudoscientific fringe surrounding SETI, like flying saucers, enthusiasts, archaeo-astronauts, and the like, would feel encouraged by relaxing the conservative tenets of the orthodox SETI. This argument is hard to evaluate, due to its essentially social and extra-scientific nature. In any case, it gives far too much weight and influence to the fringe and pseudoscientists than is tolerable in any serious scientific discipline. Imagine analogous situation in medical research, a claim that we should refrain from promising research into psychosomatic nature of a particular illness on the account that faith healers would misrepresent it and rejoice, would be rejected out of hand. The proposed and unconventional approach, with its emphasis on the search for the manifestations of ATCs, would lose nothing of the advantages of conventional SETI before detection, but the gains could be enormous. The list of both theoretical and observational SETI studies performed so far along the Dysonian guidelines is rather short. Most of it is the following. Searches for artificial objects near Earth and anomalous spectral lines in stellar spectra performed by Robert A. Friedis Jr. and Francisco Valdez in the 1980s. Japanese program of searches for Dyson shells around nearby stars. Proposals for observational or archival searches for Dyson shells or related astro-engineering projects. The detailed study of Sandberg fruitfully linking information processing to macro-engineering. Investigations of gamma-ray signatures of antimatter burning by ATCs. A recent proposal for searching for transits of artificial objects across observed stars. The analysis of archival extragalactic data by Annis suggesting the absence of star-powered Kardashev type three civilizations among nearby galaxies. To this disturbingly short list, one may add several important theoretical studies showing either general feasibility of artifacts detectable from afar, or the necessity of taking a non-standard approach to the target civilizations. The latter have been, significantly enough, often written by biologists interested in SETI, and have not yet been given due credit and attention in the orthodox SETI circles. The proposed reorientation of SETI projects is, in a very deep sense, independent of the favorite model for solutions of puzzles related to the extraterrestrial intelligence, most notably Fermi's paradox, although there may indeed be more than 50 solutions to Fermi paradox, essentially all major solutions are compatible with, or indeed suggestive, of the Dysonian approach. Of course, the two approaches are at present compatible and should be pursued in parallel, at least until there is better theoretical insight into the preconditions for emergence of technological civilizations in the galaxy. The ability to extract information from the interstellar environment increases dramatically with each passing year. As the resolution of the data increases, so does the availability, sorry, so does the ability to process and infer its nature. This process will deeply challenge conceptions of the universe and what we think we know about it. It will also challenge the way in which we see ourselves and our potential as an intelligent civilization. As has already been the case in the preceding decades, we will undoubtedly encounter strange and mysterious phenomena. We will uncover unique objects and signals that will surely defy explanation. And in these cases, we must conclude one of three things. One, that our data is somehow flawed and unlikely and often correctable circumstance. 
Two, that there are shortcomings in our physical understanding, historically predominant case. Or three, that we have uncovered phenomenon that was created by an artificial source. To reject any of these possibilities would be unscientific and disingenuous. Limiting ourselves to semi-random searches of the cosmos for antiquated technological signals is an affront to the rigorousness that the SETI endeavor demands. As our technologies change, so too does our conception of the future and our place in it. Consequently, our search for advanced life must mirror these conceptions. It is incumbent upon us to keep the prospect wide open. And that concludes the paper. Wow, it took me exactly an hour to read that, by the way. Not including our breaks. Again, the paper entitled Dysonian Approach to SETI, A Fruitful Middle Ground by Robert Bradbury, Milan Sergovich, and myself, George Dvorsky. Unfortunately, this paper is not yet available online for free. If you would like it, though, you can go to, well, if you want to pay for it, you can go to the JBiz site and look for it there. Or you can just send me an email and I'll send you a PDF, george at sentientdevelopments.com. And what you did not get from my um, reading of the paper was a sense of uh, the depth of the references. We have 67 different references in here. Everything from, obviously, SETI experts and astronomers through to computational scientists and biologists, futurists, transhumanists in the whole bit and uh, very proud of that body of references and again um, should you want a copy of this and I've had tremendous interest in it so far by the way um, no reason why you can't ask as well to get a copy again george at sentientdevelopments.com well that wasn't so bad was it um, I don't think it was perhaps as dry as I, I had feared and I'm glad to put this all into one concise podcast I'm very happy now that I've done this Thank you for sticking through and all the way to the end, and I hope that uh, you enjoyed it and that um, you picked up perhaps on some uh, some things about the SETI endeavor and the Dysonian approach that perhaps you hadn't considered before. And I will now conclude this week's podcast, and uh, thank you once again for listening. This was Sentient Development's podcast. My name is George Dvorsky. Please, I hope to speak to you again in about a week's time. And until then, have yourselves a great week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sentient Developments. Goodbye.